Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of Let Creativity Podcast. This is your host, Alicia Kayhurst. Today's guest is Costanza Roeder. She is the founder of a nonprofit called Hearts Need Art, and she brings in artists to oncology units, adult oncology units, to help liven up the place, to help heal, to help bring joy into a very difficult space and she explains everything very well and very passionately and enthusiastically so please without further ado Costanza Roeder. I'm really excited to have you and I can't wait for this conversation. Um, So you are the founder of Hearts Need Art organization and we'll get to that in just a second but before we do get to that and how that blossomed how um can you tell the audience a little bit about you as a person who you were oh uh just like broad overview so I um grew up in Santa Cruz California and I now live in San Antonio Texas with my husband my one-year-old and my dog Gabby and I love all things creativity and the arts. And um, that's what I studied in school is music. And uh, I'm also a cancer survivor and now get to do all kinds of cool things with um, with other cancer survivors. Oh, very nice. Uh, and for music, what kind of, if you don't mind me asking, what uh, area did you study with music? Sure. I was a... Um, I was a vocalist or I am a vocalist. I'm a singer and I've been a voice teacher and the bulk of my kind of performance career was in musical theater. It's kind of my, my first love. Um, so I'm a big theater nerd. Um, and, but I do, I sing a lot of different styles, every kind of everything from opera to pop and country and kind of whatever, whatever I'm feeling that day. That's amazing. I love that. I, I mean, I don't think I've ever met someone who has such a wide range, like opera <laughs> to pop, but that's great. <laughs> yep. It's, I don't like being stuck in one box. I just like good music and I like um, being able to sing just good music. Awesome. And then did you, um, so you mentioned you had, you, you're a leukemia survivor. Is, mm-hmm. And ha- do you mind saying a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I'm, it kind of ties into you know, how, how I started Hearts Need Art and all of that. So I'll just kind of wrap that all together. Uh, so yeah, I was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 13 years old. And I, you know, at that point in my life, I was, had like all of my future planned. I was going to do all of the AP classes and graduate early. And then I was going to go to Stanford and study astrophysics and just everything was planned. And then that unexpected thing happened. Um, and that kind of upended my life, obviously. Um, Mm. and I did actually get to go to Stanford, but for a very different reason, (laughs) I was treated at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford um, and received a much different type of education than I expected, but one that I um, greatly valued and changed the course of my life. Um, So I had 130 weeks of chemotherapy and I've been cancer-free ever since, uh, thankfully, at a very treatable form of leukemia. 
And that was, as you can imagine, emotionally a very challenging time of my life. And there was a lot of grief that I had to deal with. And there was a lot of um, loss and anger and frustration um, and, and then joy and gratitude, like just all these huge emotions that I never really had to deal with before. Um, had met lots of friends with cancer and um, lost lots of friends to cancer. Mm. Um, so I've dealt with death. Death has been a part of my life for a long time. Um, and the arts were always a huge part of how I coped with that. Um, my faith was super important. And, you know, so when we were in the hospital, we would sing songs to each other. <laughs> you know, I came from a musical family. And so that seemed very natural. And we would sing, um, you know, my mom would sing me songs of God's goodness and um, provision and love for me when I was feeling so down. And that encouraged me at a, at a core level because music, you know, can penetrate all the layers that we sometimes right. put yeah. up. And then sometimes we just sang silly songs. And sometimes I invented songs. Like when I was, um, <laughs> one time I was in the hospital for a procedure and I was getting, um, sedated and my mother wasn't in the room with me that time. My brother was, it was like one of my last treatments. And my mom thought it was good that my brother got to like, see a little bit of what I had to go through. Oh yeah. Cause anyway, we, we had a lot of sibling rivalry growing up, but, um, <laughs> anyway, my, what, what my brother didn't know is that I would ask for more sedation. Like I, I, I sedate like a two-year-old, um, not like they wouldn't even usually give me the sedation for my weight and my height because I sedated so easily. Um, but my brother didn't know that. So as I started asking for more, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll just give you the whole dose. Um, so then I was high as a kite for <laughs> hours and was just singing and making up songs. And there's like little bald kids, like walking past my room with their poles, like peeking in, oh. there was a, a newly diagnosed <laughs> teen right next to me. And he's like, am I getting what she had? Like, cause that's awesome. <laughs> anyway. So just like the just ridiculousness but anyway that it music brought a lot of joy um into our lives and then there were also uh there's also a, a group in my hometown um that was uh sponsored by a local nonprofit that supported families fed kids with cancer and they had a group for teens and young adults with cancer and we would get together and we would do art like that's what we would do we would tell our stories through um, different art mediums. Um, sometimes it had a tie-in to our experience with cancer and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it was just um, fun. And that was really kind of the first, my kind of my first real experience with, with expressive arts and, and mm -hmm. how powerful that could be for, for healing and how needed that was. Like the, the type of things that I could express on a safe container, like a canvas that didn't have any feelings and didn't care, didn't have any judgments over me. Right. I could just spill it all on there. Um, and that allowed me to really admit certain ways that I was feeling for the first time, kind of even to myself. And then I was able to share that with others and share stories with others and feel less lonely and, um, really take power back, uh, from, during this time of my life where I felt so powerless. 
so that experience really stuck with me. And I went on, like I said, to study music in college. I met my husband and he was in the Navy. So we moved to San Antonio um, where he was stationed after we got married. And I started volunteering on an adult oncology unit here in town. Um, and I'd never been on an adult oh, hospital, yeah. like adult oncology like, or just an adult hospital period. And I was like, whoa, this is really different than pediatrics oh my gosh <laughs> like how no, was it uh, there wasn't just, well there's just no color there's no it's just institutional looking and yeah. there's no activities and I mean when I was in the hospital like multiple times a day there'd be different volunteers or groups coming into my room and giving me stuffed animals and like wanting to talk with me and, and entertain me and magicians just like a steady stream of people and then these adults that I worked with, many of whom weren't much older than I was when I finished treatment, all these young adults were just stuck in their rooms, oh. isolated for days, weeks, months at a time. Um, some of whom didn't even, weren't even able to have family with them because their family lived far away and had to keep working in order to pay for them to be able to, oh, right. for their treatments. Mm-hmm. So they can still have health insurance and all those things. And it just was a really depressing, it was just like the environment was depressing. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and so I just started singing for patients. I would go room to room and I would sing for them. And what a beautiful soul. I mean, that's <laughs> well, I blame the social workers, the oncology social workers, Nikki and Jenna that I worked with, you know, it really was their idea first when they found out I was a singer, they're like, Oh my gosh, stop what you're doing. Come with me to this room. Like this patient really could use some music. Can you sing them a song? And I was like, I guess sure. And that's how it started. And I would round with them and they would take me to patients that were really forlorn or had a, had a hard diagnosis or, um, were end of life, you know, all, all those kind of, um, situations that you would expect to see on an oncology unit and music just trans transformed people in a way, um, that I I think not much can. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I, you know, my people I worked with, the most common thing they said was, well, they would cry and then they would say, thank you. And then they're like, um, we need this all the time. Like we need more of this. Yeah. We need more art and music. We need, uh, writing, like all these things I didn't know how to do. So it's like, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so in 2016, I, I incorporated heart scene art, creative support for patients and caregivers as a nonprofit in San Antonio to, to identify and train up other local artists and creatives to just come in and facilitate the creative process and creative experiences with patients and caregivers um, in the hospitals. That's so amazing. And I'd like to touch upon a couple of points because you brought up a lot. Um, One, as you're talking and it's going through my mind is first, as a teenager, a lot of teenagers don't know how to express their emotions just alone, whether they're, you know, (laughs) normal or in a hospital. So the fact that you're given that outlet, I thought, I mean, that's amazing. It was a lifesaver. Two, talk about life. I mean, the arts bring life, right, into a very, um, I'm thinking dismal, but, you know, Mm -hmm. situation. 
And as you're talking about that time, like your light, your eyes are lit up. Like <laughs> it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all, I'm sure it was tough and difficult. And yeah. I mean, you're facing a lot of um, questions about life that a lot of people wouldn't even have to think about, let alone a teenager. Yeah. Um, so I bet it, it helped you not helped you, but I bet you grew up fast in a way Yeah. at that time. Um, and then the dichotomy about or the, the, the difference between the, the, that unit and then an adult unit, I, Mm. something that you, that really speaks what I've seen as my career as an art therapist, you've, it's adults at some point between teenager and adult, it's, I don't know if it's society or, or what, but there's, it's, there's some message that they don't need the Mm. art, don't need that playfulness. They don't need that there or, Mm -hmm or the funding doesn't need to be there for them. It needs to be um, only for children and teens. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> I do have my own theories about this. Yes. <laughs> the, um, yeah, it's so funny, people's assumptions about the arts. So even, even when I talk about what we do, even when I talk explicitly, like we work with adult, adult <laughs> patients, spell it out, then people, it still goes into their brain that we're working with children. Um, and there is this, I think this sense in our culture that the arts are for kids and maybe like stay at home moms who are doing crafty things, or if you're super talented, you can be a professional. Um, and when I work with, when I work with patients, one of the things that one of the responses we get the most when we offer an arts activity to them is, oh, I'm not an artist. Oh, I can't do that. Like, oh, I'm not whatever. And whenever I ask them in probe, every single person has had a story of wounding around their creativity. Yeah. At some point, an art teacher criticized their artwork in a way that made them just shut down and never want to do it again. Um, a music teacher told them to just mouth the words in the choir because they <laughs> couldn't sing in tune or their mother or their, their sibling or someone close to them, someone that had someone in influence and power in their life um, told them that they weren't good enough. And then they just never engaged in that part of themselves again. And what's so cool working with adults and reintroducing them to their creativity is it's electric when the, when you watch those connections happen and they, you put crayons or markers in front of them and they have no idea what to do. And then they pick it up and then they just do it. And it just is almost like this instinct kicks in and so many people at the end of an art class or a session, um, they'll be like, oh my gosh, I think I'm an artist. Like I had no idea. And <laughs> there's something so cool. And then, you know, as I'm a, I'm in arts education as well as a voice teacher. And I've worked with so many, so many students who have been told by other teachers or um, so, again, someone else in their life who told them that they didn't have talent or were tone deaf or whatever it is. And I was like, you know what, just because you couldn't figure out how to teach them doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. Yes. Yes. Like <laughs> the, like the percentage of people that are truly tone deaf, like from birth is infinitesimally small. It's so small. And their voices, 
their speaking voices sound abnormal as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they have no inflection in their tone. It's, it's a very rare thing to encounter someone who's truly tone deaf. Um, your instrument and my instrument, like your voice and my voice, the structures are basically the same. It's just learning the skills about how to, how to manipulate them and use them in a way that produces the sounds that you want to make. And same thing with visual arts, like their skills yeah. that you learn to be able to translate something in your head to your hands and dance as well, being able right. to, yeah. you know, do the dance forms that you don't come out of the womb knowing those things, but we come out of the womb wanting to do those things. And yes. then when we treat people like, you know, we don't do this with any other subject. We don't do like, oh, well, you're a little slow at reading. So you're just not a reader. We're just not going to teach you the fundamentals so you can get it. That's no, a great point. <laughs> like, why do we do this with the arts? And it, it's such, it gets me really riled up. Because <laughs> um, every person has a right to their own voice. Every person has the right to their own mark making. Everyone has a right to their own movement and expression. And I think it's one of the biggest lies that our, our society tries to force down our throats, that the arts are expendable, that they're superfluous, that they're only for the talented, they're impractical, unless you are a professional, like then, right. then like, okay, fine, you can keep doing it. Um, but because it's not practical or whatever, then, um, then you shouldn't do it. Like you're wasting your time, right? when now there's all this research showing that actually the arts are really important for our health and well-being. <laughs> actually, they're really important for like the health and well-being of societies. Actually, they're really central to who we are as human beings and being whole people. Um, and so this, this uh, fringe thing that only certain people are allowed to do is starting to become, come into focus um, in countries around the world actually are starting to take a serious look at, okay, how do we, well, this seems to be important. Like, how do we encourage, how do we facilitate this? How do we encourage people to engage with their creativity more? And I'm just babbling on now. So <laughs> No, I'm, I'm just like, yes, <laughs> preach, preach. Uh, I, I do. You would <laughs> I am curious about, because um, I've thought about this, about, especially in education. Um, mm. Mm. I'm not a teacher or anything, so I don't know specifically about the education system and like the standards or what rules they have to follow, but in particular with the arts, and I'm curious about your uh, opinion about this, but I like, I was trying to problem solve it. Like, how can we, how can you prevent like the art trauma that happens in school mm. um, with teachers sometimes? And I don't think they're, you know, malicious about it, but I was my one of my problem solving uh, solutions was to have creativity classes rather than art classes just mm. on using you know creativity as problem solving or creativity as um, you know creating <laughs> rather than like um, how can you do this in a specific manner or technique not that I don't think those are important but you know in a way that it's not judging the person on mm how they're, um, on how they're creating. It's more about how, you know, teaching them how to create, just like you said, like, uh, English and math, but what would, what do you think the solution? Is? Oh, yeah. I mean, these are, these are good questions. And I think they're starting to happen in arts education, which I'm 
really excited about. And yeah, like creativity classes or expressive arts classes where the focus is, where it's taught kind of more like a health class, where here, here are tools that you can use to support wellness and wholeness as a person. And the focus isn't so much about the, the technique um, and fitting into a prescribed model, but while teaching skills that are helpful to express, you know, it's, it is, it, of course, like I can have an expressive experience just scribbling on a page, but sometimes there's an image in me that I really want to put down. And if I have some basic, you know, drawing skills that is helpful in that process of expression or same thing and same thing in voice, you know, having basic music literacy, I think is so important. And then with dance, like movement, it's so like, so important. Um, you know, in, as a, as a voice teacher, it's something I'm very aware of Mm -hmm. constantly, especially because I work with young people. I work primarily with um, middle school through high school and some college. Uh, so it's a very formative time of people, of kids' lives, and you can really cause some damage <laughs> there. Uh, you know, and my, my personal approach to music teaching is the sound that's coming out of someone's mouth is just neutral information. It's mm-hmm. just information about what is, what is currently happening in their body to produce that sound you know, that what their vocal folds are doing, how much air they're using, what shapes they're making with their mouth and their tongue and all those things. And it's just neutral. There is no, it's no, it's not good or bad or whatever. It just is. And then in, we ask the question, okay, what, where do we want to go? Okay. If we're singing in a particular style, that type of style needs this type of approach and configuration. So let's just nudge, nudge the function of the body and the voice that direction, um, toward our target. Mm-hmm. But again, like all the sounds we make with our voice are valid. And I, I think that approach to it, um, just takes the pressure off and it just can become a fun experiment and it can bring an element of play and also artistic excellence. I think that's where a lot of academics are afraid of this type of approach because they're afraid of losing um, artistic excellence, but I think we can absolutely move people in the direction of artistic excellence while still protecting their, their personhood and their expressive creative selves. And maybe that looks like not fitting them so tightly in a box. That's so closely tied with dead old white European, (laughs) you know, it's, there's a lot, there's, um, there's a, there's a movement in music education right now calls a decolonizing the music classroom. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yes, <gasps> like finally, like I study, I study music in school and it was all, it was all classical. Like that's what we learned and the forms that we learned and music theory and the, the rep that we learned, that I learned, um, that I sang and it, that only values a particular, way that my voice can function at the expense of others. You know, I, in, in white European, um, culture, this is just one example. Women, uh, were discouraged from using their chest voices because that was too, that was, um, too manly or too, um, uh, there's, there's another word that's used. That's not coming to me. That's more degrading. Um, it was, it was ugly. Like you weren't supposed to use your chest voice. Oh wow! And so everything is just high 
and floaty and blah, 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 blah. And so soprano, classically trained soprano is like, their voices are kind of up here and they just talk like this always. <laughs> um, and that's, kind of, I mean, that's how I was. That's kind of how I came out of it. And, but I always like, there was something that happened when I got out of college and started training my, my chest voice and, and really explored uh, music that wasn't rooted in white European, you know, 18th century culture. <laughs> and there was a unification that I felt that happened inside of me when I was really given and gave myself permission to use my full self and my full voice. And I think this is what happens when we, again, reunite people with their creativity, because we're bringing, we're bringing people back in connection with deeper connection with themselves. Um, yeah. And it's such a powerful thing that I experience, of course, personally in my life. And then that the gift that I get to bring to other people. And it's just such a cool thing to get a front row seat to see <laughs> on a regular I, basis. I love, I, you're speaking about it so eloquently. And I love the, um, I mean, everything that you're talking about is some things I've observed as well, but I also love that you're talking about music specifically, because mm. I think that is like a, um, uh, for a lot of people, like they only sing in the shower, you know, so when yeah. don't hear them. Um, but also I think at the core of it, when you're talking about educating people is you're, you were saying something like it's, to me, it sounded like you want to teach people the basic skills to help support their individual expression of whatever creative outlet it is. And yeah. I, that's the important part. And I also think the artistic excellence, I totally agree with you because I think when people are, are feel safe to be completely themselves, that artistic excellence is going to go in different avenues. We probably haven't seen. Oh yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that, you know, I, I have a, a music student that, um, is, we had our last lesson last week and she's going off to college and all these things. And I, I know she's going into a traditional music program and, um, I was like, okay, we're, I'm going to give you this thing that I want you to keep doing. And it, anyway, we just started doing a lot more vocal improv stuff in our, in our lessons, just to enjoy, like come back to that touchstone of enjoying music, enjoying our voices and uniting that with expressing how we're feeling and staying in touch with our own, our own internal sense of music. Um, whereas so much in academia and in, in music, it, it can be very prescribed and the expressive element, you know, can even become formulaic and it's not truly authentic. Um, so <laughs> I told her, I was like, don't let them beat it out of you. <laughs> like making sure you are still doing something that is just fun and is expressive. That's just for yourself. So that's amazing. And now to tie it to your, uh, your organization, how do you, so can you tell us a bit more about your organization? Cause I know it's, you're helping, um, artists come into hospitals to help patients and caregivers. Can you give us an idea of what that looks like? Sure. Yeah. So it kind of, it starts with how we train our artists and we work with professional musicians, artists, writers, um, that have a professional that work professionally in the field, have formal training, all those kind of things. Um, uh, and the first thing we do in the training is really introduce, make sure we're introducing them to this idea of, of just 
art, just the process of enjoying, I'm not, I'm not being so eloquent here. <laughs> um, the goal is not the product. It's the process that again, that whatever a patient does is neutral information. It's, it's, and it's, we want to encourage that. Right. And so we're teaching them how to make comments on, on a patient's artwork that don't have value judgments on them, but are observational and help lead them, you know, and if they want to learn a new skill or they want things to look differently than they do, they can bring those skills alongside. And then for our musicians, it's, they don't come in with their own agenda. They're coming in and asking patients, what do you want to listen to? And so we look for musicians that have a wide range of <clears throat> musical styles that they can perform. Um, same thing for writers. It, we're teaching them how to lead a patient-led <laughs> experience, um, expressive arts experience. Uh, so that can look like a few different things. So for visual arts, we bring artists into patients' individual rooms and work with them. They do different types of projects at the bedside, just on the bedside table. Uh, sometimes we have patients that really aren't feeling up to participating actively. So they might direct the artist in a mural drawing that they do on their window in their oh. rooms to help them personalize their space. Big shout out to environmental services who let us do this yes. and are willing to clean up after <laughs> us <laughs> in between tape patients, but they do, and our artists do the most beautiful murals. And then it just, anyway, I could go on about that. It's, it's, uh, that's a really cool piece of what we do. Um, writers are going in offering different types of activities from like, let's write a poem. Let's do a Mad Lib. Let's do some journaling prompts, whatever that is. And the musicians, that could be everything from music education. So we do, um, we teach ukulele. If a patient's interested in guitar or piano, we can teach those as well. Um, but mostly it's, it's, um, it's playing, you know, patient preferred music for them. And this extends to family caregivers and to healthcare staff. So we also do programs that are specifically targeted toward healthcare staff, which is so needed right now because our healthcare staff is, it's just like, makes me cry. If I think too hard about it, they're, mm. you know, and we just, they're just fleeing the healthcare field right now at a time when, you know, COVID is spiking and, and the hospitals are, are full again. Um, and it's, it's not a moral failing on their part. They're just completely burned out and they just can't, nope. can't do it anymore. So supporting our healthcare staff is really important. So if little shameless plug, if you, if there are any healthcare people in healthcare listening to the podcast, um, you can actually enroll in one of our programs for free on our website. Uh, we have something called gratitude grams and you can go to heartseenart.org, um, and click on gratitude grams. Uh, and when you enroll, we match you with one of our artists or musicians, and they send you a personal email each week with a, a video, uh, with a song, a little art activity, a writing prompt, along oh. with some sort of message of gratitude from either themselves or someone in the community that's shared a message with us. Oh, and sure you know, our, we, we love this program because it's just a three to five minute video that they can access 
from home. They can access it at work when they're on a break and just need a little pick me up. And we do find that the, our, a lot of our enrollees watch those multiple times throughout the week when they need a little pick me up and they report that their mood is improved, that their energy is improved, that their, um, their sense of hopelessness is reduced and, and all these things that they feel appreciated. Um, so if you are listening, you can absolutely enroll in gratitude grams. Um, you can also write a letter to health of gratitude to healthcare workers. Um, if you go to our website and click on the, the get involved tab, um, you, there's a link where you can write a letter to a healthcare provider. And then we include those in our videos. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. So that's one way you can directly support um, healthcare workers right now. I love, I love all of this. <laughs> uh, and then how does it look for caregivers? Do you, do they come in at the same, like when they're there with the patients or is it a separate thing? Yeah. Generally they're working alongside um, their loved one that they're they're there visiting. Um, Pre-COVID, we did art classes in addition to bedside. Um, right now, patients can't con congregate. It'll probably be like that for at least another year. Um, but patients and their family caregivers would come to art class together, and oh. they just <laughs> uh, just gave them a a positive experience that had really nothing to do with their disease and yeah, it, it, that, that was just one of our, um, highest impact programs. And we're really sad we can't do it right now, but it'll come back eventually. And sometimes those caregivers would come by themselves. And sometimes the patients would come by themselves and that would give the caregiver, whether they're coming or they're staying some time to themselves where mm -hmm. they're getting a break from that burden of caregiving. Um, I had one patient or one, um, caregiver one time, that shared, you know, she really, she was a, a wife of a patient and she said, she just really felt this heavy burden to keep his spirits up and keep him entertained and keep him engaged and, and encourage him and all this. And it was exhausting. And so whenever she would hear music in the halls or one of our artists, um, nearby, she, she said she would go run to come find us, to bring, bring, bring us to the room. Um, cause it, was so helpful for both of them, but it also gave her a break. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, those kind of little stories happen all the time. And that's, I mean, it's amazing what you're doing. I can just, I mean, just, uh, I don't know another word for it, but spiritually, I bet just the like energetic, mm -hmm. you're lighting everyone's, you know, spirits, which yeah. is super important. And I know there's no like test to a that <laughs> maybe by yet. how many Not smiles yet, <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, um, they're, they're having to pretty much invent new research tools to research the arts because they're realizing that the research tools that they have really aren't adequate to capture the impact that it's making and the mm -hmm. impact that it's making is is undeniable and there there's lots of anecdotal evidence and 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 quantitative data as well, but they're, they're designing and inventing new research tools. And actually one of those actually is, um, uh, for observing impact of music in a communal setting. And one of those things is measuring like smiles oh, <laughs> of the audience members and, uh, you know, the change in affects from the time a person sits down throughout the length of them listening to music and going. So anyway, so they're starting to figure out how to capture that. Um, and I think for a long time, 
the arts and research in the arts has really been pushed pushed to the fringe because the gold standard has been double blind, you know, controlled studies, you know, mm. that study medications and disease processes and stuff. And because you can't really do that with the arts because you can't really, there's <laughs> it's so individualized and yeah. Individualized. <laughs> yeah and it's such a holistic experience and there's so many different variables that you can't it, it does it would be stupid to pull out different things like well was it because the family member was in that room sharing the experience with them is it because the healthcare worker was in there with them is it because they played this type of music versus that type of music is it because the patient was in this mood versus that mood when they started like there's so many variables um that you really can't control but also feed into making it a holistic experience yeah like so <laughs> you know it's just more complex than, than well and then there's a space attribute too right like when you're making art whether it's writing or music or there's a I think there's a time in between too where you're you you're still thinking about it like and then you're coming back to it and, mm -hmm. and doing it again like there's that in between time yeah. Oh, yeah. The the la the longitudinal effects <laughs> of you know how you know that's another area of research is how how long do these effects last and what is the optimal dosage? How many times should we should patients have access to a music session when they're in the hospital? You know, the research shows it's it's around at least once a day. <laughs> nice. Yes. <laughs> Every twelve hours, optimally, but. <laughs> And that's great and I do want to make sure oh go ahead sorry no 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 I just I could you got to be careful of letting me go down my my research nerd um oh yeah rabbit hole. <laughs> but I think it's important you're bringing this up though um I mean because it is so true it's hard to capture that but I I'm very happy to hear they're they're you know there's a new focus on it and they're actually trying to figure it out <laughs> Yep. Uh, but I wanted to make sure we mentioned your award, uh, the 2018 Grace Ann Durr Humanitarian Award recipient. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, congratulations. Thank you. That was such an honor. She, you know, she was a woman in our community that had such a legacy for service. And I was really nominated to really honored to be nominated and then to receive the award was, was really cool. Um, so yeah, you don't, you don't go into this work like for the awards, but <laughs> but you know but I least, yeah. yeah I bet it helps you put you on the map too though I mean I think in that regard it's important so the other people know you exist and that your services exist and all that good stuff and then um you were selected as top 100 healthcare visionaries this year yeah yeah I mean this year was a really this last year was a really interesting year because we went from being very localized to San Antonio which that is still our primary focus, you know, there's, there's 5,363 or so licensed acute care hospital beds in San Antonio alone. Um, and we serve 103 of them. So there's a lot of need just right here in our city to continue to expand the work that we're doing. We're a big healthcare hub, um, in South Texas. So people from all over South Texas, which is a huge region come to the South Texas Medical Center in San Antonio for treatment. Uh, but then during the pandemic, when we couldn't work with patients in person, we converted all of our programs to a virtual 
format. And so patients, wherever they were, could access, could make an appointment directly with one of our artists. Um, we also worked with many support groups around the country. Um, and we formed new partnerships with like Memorial Sloan Kettering and Northwestern and Chicago and USC and um, group, you know, cancer centers in Iowa, you know, just kind of all over the place. And all of a sudden there was this accessibility that we were providing, um, that was really needed. And then now that we're back in person, we're able to provide a continuum of care where a, a patient might really love working with Hannah in the hospital. And then in between treatments, they can schedule a zoom session with her when they're at home to keep oh. working on that project or to do a new thing. And then when they're back in the hospital, you know, they get to work with her again. So it helps to continue, That's great. continue that relationship, which is, which was so needed. Um, and I was just so grateful to the, um, the international forum on advancements in healthcare who gave me the award for recognizing the importance of the role of the arts to even, you know, pick someone from the arts for their award. Uh, so I think speaks a lot to the way that they are visionaries in their own space. Um, oh, so I was, um, really grateful to have that award and get to go to their conference and meet all these other like amazing people who are <laughs> such cool, like geeky, wonderful ah, things that are just so fun. Um, and that it was just, yeah, that was a really cool experience this year. Uh, and then I, I forgot to ask you about, cause you have an adopt an artist. Is that, mm. um, is that the only way that the artists go in or is that an additional way they go and help? Yeah. So our adopt an artist program, we have different ways that people support our work because the, these types of programs aren't yet reimbursable by insurance. So hospitals generally don't have the margin to fully fund these types of programs. So, um, even when we, you know, do have a healthcare partner that is providing some from their operational budget, it still needs to be, uh, supplemented with phil phil philanthropy, with donations, with grants, all those kind of things. And so adopt an artist is a cool program that we're able to get community members and people who want to support our work engaged and connect and feel really connected with the work of a particular artist. So say they want to adopt Jaime because Jaime is awesome. He's a musician. He's from El Salvador. He is just so he's so cool. And if they, uh, they can adopt him for, you know, $25 a month, $50 a month, hundred dollars a month, whatever it is. And then each month they get an update of like one of the cool things that happened that month that he was able to do because of their support. Oh. Um, so it's a way that we, we supplement, um, uh, the resources we have to pay our artists. Cause we absolutely believe that artists should get paid for their work. Uh, I think people get confused because we're a nonprofit. They, you know, sometimes people are like, Oh, you get paid or like you pay people. It's like, Yes. <laughs> like nonprofits are businesses too. Just know there is no owner that profits from any excess that comes in with revenue. Um, but yes, people can get paid in nonprofits and they should because they're doing right. super valuable work. <laughs> and honestly, it's, a, it's an issue of equity because if you only have organizations that are run off of volunteers and only people that can afford to volunteer, 
will volunteer. And that doesn't always represent the, de- the demographic of the people that you're trying to serve. And right. really it becomes an issue of equity. So, you know, there's people on our team that would absolutely not be able to do the work that they're able to do with us if we didn't pay them. Um, and not because they don't absolutely want to do it, but because they need to eat. <laughs> And they need to be able to pray their rent. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so yes, you can adopt an artist to empower them um, to do the work that we're doing in hospitals. That's amazing. Um, and again, before, uh, what was, I wanted to ask you one more, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about your organization that I didn't ask you that you wanted to highlight? Oh, um, well, we were, we're very passionate about prov- uh, that, the art should be accessible for all patients and caregivers across the United States. We're a small organization. Our focus is here in South Texas. And, but, you know, we do provide um, virtual services. So if you are elsewhere, you can access those services on our website, heartseenart.org, and you can click on virtual art sessions and you can schedule. Um, if you're a patient, survivor, family caregiver, healthcare worker, you can access those, those sessions for free of charge. Um, so please feel free to do that. If you lead a group, um, like a support group or, um, something like that, where you meet virtually and you would like one of our artists to come and lead a session, you can schedule, you can request those and we can, um, we can do those for you. So you can request those on that virtual page as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the ways that we feel like we can contribute to the larger vision of the field of arts and health to raise awareness and help educate people on how they can use the arts to improve their health and well-being, um, as we started a podcast earlier this year called "Arts for the Health of It." Oh. Arts for the health of it. <laughs> I do like it. Um, and you can access it on all the things. And um, like you, you know, we we interview people from all across the field, um, researchers and policymakers and artists and patients and survivors, just people who have uh, work and have experienced that intersection of arts and health and well-being. And it's, it's so fun, like making the podcast and talking to all these amazing people that have these amazing stories and re- amazing resources that they're able to offer to our listeners. So make sure to check out Arts for the Health of It if you really want to dive more into this topic. Wonderful. Okay. I'll definitely post that too. And then there's uh, four questions I like to ask everyone if you don't mind. All right, bring it on. I will try to make it short. (laughs) (laughs) So number one is what is creativity? Ooh, um, I think creativity is association. It's being able to see and problem solving, it's being able to see unlike how unlike things can come together and um, how you can put things together in kind of a unique way. Um, adjacent to that, I think, is expressivity, um, which doesn't necessarily have to be creative, but can often become creative. Um, so that's my sh- short version of that. And then what do you love about creativity? Oh, I mean, I'm kind of always up in my head, like imagining things and um, just seeing how you can, creativity just is the superpower that we can use to solve the world's problems. And I think when you combine that with your own unique story and perspective, 
that's when it can become truly electric because only you have the perspective and experience that you've been through and you might see connections that no one else can see. And I think people often get discouraged and think like, well, oh, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't have expertise or I don't, I'm not good enough or I, whatever the excuse, whatever the lies that, you know, are in your head that might try to stop you. So my, my encouragement based off of this question for people listening is lean in and, and look at the world around you from your perspective. How do you see putting those, um, different pieces together to problem solve, to, to, to serve the people around you? Beautiful. And then what do you not like about creativity? Uh, that it sometimes comes and goes (laughs) (laughs) that sometimes you're just dry (laughs) and you know, it's when it's so often there, you know, when you work in a creative space and you lean on that all the time and you're kind of in that space all the time, it's when you go to lean into it and then it's not there, it's kind of like stepping out, expecting a step and then falling through the floor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What I don't like about it. And then one last question, where is your creativity? Ooh, I think my creativity is in my heart. It sounds like it too. Because <laughs> hearts need arts and yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I can't wait to share this with everyone um, and post it everywhere. Awesome. Me too. So great to talk with you today. Thank you. And again, thank you, Costanza, for being a guest on the show. Thank you, listeners, for listening. You can reach Costanza one more time at heartsneedart.org. Uh, that's where you can find her freebies for healthcare workers, uh, caregivers, and patients, and of course, where you can adopt an artist or uh, support her site and organization. Thanks again, and I will see you next week. Have a good one.